I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Tracy Michaelidis is an actor and singer based in Toronto. In this conversation, we talk about theater myth collectives Ingenue, fighting the idea that musical theater actors aren't real actors, and finding life balance in a theater career. After recording this episode, Tracy had to withdraw from the production of Ingenue due to a family circumstance, and it was announced that Mari Bab will step into her role. Ingenue runs from May 25th to June 4th at Toronto's Red Sandcastle. Now, here's my conversation with Tracy Michaelidis. Just to jump straight in, could you tell me about, is it ingenue? Is that the, is that how, because it's ingenue, where there's some brackets in there. Tell me about this show. Yes, ingenue, yeah. Uh, that's Evan Chichis, who's the writer and director. Um, yeah, I mean, it's about uh, a woman who is mid-life, mid-career, who is, who has played many ingenues. All the ingenues, she says, like like in plays, Shakespeare, Juliet, Cordelia, you know, um, in musicals like Maria in The Sound of Music, Maria in West Side Story. Uh, she played, you know, Nina in The Seagull. I mean, she has played all all the ingenues. And she's suddenly in her mid-40s and can't work, can't get a job because she's still kind of living in that the role of wanting to stay young Um and it sort of ties into what's been going on in her life and her making making a step sort of psychologically to move on to being an adult. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, like a dark comedy, I would call it. Yeah. Is it, is it, I mean, you know, Ingenue is, is the young, is it a show about um, coming to terms with not, no longer being the Ingenue? Is it a show about, uh, dare I say, getting older? It, like, what is, what is the show about? Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, and I don't want to give too much away about the play because it's, but um, but I will say there are three women in the cast, and I am of the middle in terms of our chronological ages in this piece and as people. Uh, so there is someone who is more quote the ingenue age, and then there is someone who is older than me, 
And so I think it's it's about aging, but I think it's also about um, how we identify um, ourselves. You know, there's, I think with women, right, there's, this is not with theater, but it's like, I think it's like maiden, um, goddess, and crone. And I believe the crone is like, I think at 40, you become a crone. And this idea, but that the crone also holds a lot of wisdom, right? I, I, I got to play the witch in Into the Woods a little while ago, and my way sort of into that part because like sort of putting on a voice and being witchy was i didn't really know how to do that but i really started reading stuff about crones and and that sort of um wisdom that someone has later in their lives um and stepping into that uh which i think is part of what this is about too so not just about getting older but what the responsibilities are of getting older and also the things we can free ourselves of right when we get older well, absolutely. I mean, um, I know uh, uh, a lot of women as they get older, they say, I don't give a shit anymore. Yeah. Just don't give a fuck anymore. I and swear. I wasn't sure I was going to say that. Yeah. Sure. Let's just, just let it out. It, we don't have any kind of like regulations about that. It's I internet. Do not. No. Um, but yeah, it's like, I don't give a fuck anymore. Uh, I can say what I want. I could do what I want. Yeah, totally. I, I definitely feel that. I mean, I was just writing, it was World Theater Day the other day, and I, I posted a picture of a show that I just done, and I was like, I, I feel both like, it becomes more sacred to me, like art and theater. And also like I give a shit lap. Like I just don't give a shit in the same way. But it's also more sacred. Like it's that balance, right? Where it's like you really, I value how much it, it means to me and what it is in this world, art. And at the same time, yeah, it's like, fuck, like like you do your best. It's a like, it's a play. It's a play. It's like just being reminded of, of that too. And yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And this is being done at the, at, you know, one of my favorite little theaters in Toronto, the Red Sandcastle Theater, which is an incredibly intimate space to be doing a musical in. It is. Yes. We did our trailers there. Um, I hadn't been. Uh, actually, I'd seen a couple plays there, but I didn't get to go backstage and I went downstairs and it's got good energy, that space. I really like it. It's like this is going to be. Yes, we're going to be right there in front of the audience. Um, I mean, and I love I've done musicals in big theaters, but. I love doing musicals in, in intimate spaces. I just think it, it requires a certain level of bravery from both the audience and the actors. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's something about that space. And I know people who've, who've done been going to do shows in there and uh, they're unprepared for how intimate that is, how close you are to the audience. Yeah. Because um, they're right there. Like you could, for the most part, reach out and touch somebody in the front row. There's no division. So it's yeah. like, there's no hiding. There's no hiding in that space, which is awesome. No, it's very true. I just did a production of Sweeney Todd that we brought to Buenos Aires. We brought it to Argentina and it was immersive and mm. the audience was right there in front of us. We it's very similar. We had 32 people at, e at each play and we would move them into different spaces and they were an arm's length away from me. Sometimes mm. I would touch them. I fed them pies. I mean, it was... Terrifying, but exhilarating. This is why we do it, right? There's something about 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 that show and feeding people pies. That's that's something. Yeah, it was great. And I mean, we were in Argentina, so the meat pies were empanadas, which was perfect. Right. right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. As far how long have you been working on this show? Because I know that Evan's been working on it for a little while. I did the first reading. I I got one I, I want to say a while ago like maybe at at least five years ago, maybe eight. Um, and I've done a few readings since then as 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 uh, Evan's been developing it, and then of course COVID 
there was a hiatus. Um, and I, we did a reading um, of the, the script that is close to what we're going to be doing soon, um, just about a, a couple months ago. Um, because, you know, as Evan and I spoke about, like, this, the time, the last couple of years, COVID, but also in terms of identity, um, in terms of even being a woman, we were talking about this, like I was saying, being a woman in her 40s, like now compared to 10 years ago, even in this industry, things have changed. It's in, in a good way, I think, right? Like we, you see women who are middle-aged who are, you know, leading TV series, right? And that it is that we're having a little bit of a shift, which is great. So we talked about that and, and he's made some adjustments to the script and, and we're still developing it, you know? We're getting yeah. rehearsal in just, uh, yeah, just under a month we start rehearsals. Wow, wow. Um, you know, just as you talk about like television and things like that, I'm reminded that, that if, you know, the TV show Golden Girls, uh, those characters were all supposed to be 50. Yeah. Yeah. Most and that blows my mind because, yeah. because they dressed them like they're much older. Yeah. They're very, like I'm 50 and like I, um, yeah, like those, I mean, it was a different time, definitely hairstyles and stuff like that. But I yes. have to say, I rewatched all of them during COVID, all the Golden Girls and I mean, it's brilliant. It's so good. And those women, it really like trailblazing too. Like I knew mm -hmm. it was funny. I got jokes that I didn't maybe get when I was like 13 years old. But um, some of the issues they dealt with on that show, I was really impressed. And yeah, they do like the, the fashion sense and all of that is kind of wild. But I love that like, you know, they're talking about having sex. And because back then when I was 13, I was like, how can they be talking about that? Right. Now I'm 50. Right. I'm like, of course they're talking about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it, the, 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 the whole thing with, with, um, you know, the issues that they dealt with and the clothes that they were wearing and, 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 and the fact that they were doing all that, they were trailblazers and they were brilliant. Yeah. Um, I think that you're right that, that, that some things are changing theater wise. Um, so things can go a little faster, you know, for, yeah. for the whole like being older thing, but you know, that's all right. Um, one of the things that that I know that that I wanted to talk about, um, and it's one of the things that that you know you 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 mentioned uh, uh, was about the stere the terrible stereotype about actors who are musical theater actors, um, who are they're not real actors, which yeah. is like so terrible. But I mean, even so much as so the show, um, you know, so many TV shows have 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 followed that trope, you know. Um, where, you know, they, you know, here's a festival and, you know, the theater actor, the, the musical actors are coming in and they're all so dumb, you know, it's just like this, this thing so bad, but I, I, I wish I knew where that came from. How do you, how do you combat that? Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll say this, like, even like, and I'm, I've always, I was an English major. I'm very particular, sometimes not in a good, like about words, but even like, being called a musical theater actor, I just think even that's weird. I'm like, I'm an actor and I am in musicals and I am in plays. But like, you don't say, oh, you're, oh, they're a Chekhovian actor. They're a Shakespearean actor, right? Like that we, and I think part of me thinks sometimes it's when we're afraid, we categorize things. I think we put things into boxes because it, it makes us feel like we need to put something in its place. Um, I mean, how do I combat it slash... I'll also answer like, why do I think it comes? I think some of it comes from, sometimes it comes from like actors like who maybe feel like afraid of singing. 
because maybe they don't feel like they're good enough or brave enough or whatever. And so sometimes it comes from like a fear, I think, of just like I'm making them, I'm going to, right? Like sometimes we put things below us if we need to feel stronger or better. Um, sometimes I wonder about that. I mean, there are actors who, and you get into that whole thing. It's like, what is a bad actor? I don't even know, right? It's so subjective. We all have actors we like and actors we don't. And that's what it is. And I think whether you see that actor in a, performing a musical or a play, we're also allowed to have plays that we're shitty in. Like, it's like part of it is like learning. And this is sort of a little th thing that Ingenue deals with is like um, talking about failure. Like, what do we, how do we learn? And, and we have to learn by, um, by trying. Um, and I think sometimes, I think with the character that I'm playing in Ingenue, right? Like she, I think, has been doing really well doing this particular thing. So part of the need to keep playing that part is because she's she knows she's good at it. And it's easier sometimes to do the thing that you know you can do it rather than stretch out and, and try something new. Um, I mean, in terms of how I com combat it or, or how I deal with it as an actor, I think I try to, as best I can, like try to do musicals and plays. Like, so, you know, just do the work that speaks to me um, and try to do that for me because I like doing both. Um, and as a teacher, like try to model that to some extent for students of mine who, you know, um, I, I think, I think as an actor you do though, like if you, for me, I've had to a couple of times, um, if I was continually doing musicals, tell my agent at the time, you know what, I, I want to do a play right now. So I need to not do a musical for a while because I need to change, um, if, if people see me in a certain way, then I, I need to change that. And maybe I can change that by choosing different kinds of, of roles. So I think we can, we have some power, I think, in that way as actors, right? To, uh, yeah. to curate what we, what we do. Yeah, absolutely. I remember in, in the ancient times when I was at theater school, um, <laughs> we, uh, uh, our, our school essentially told us at that time, listen, <clears throat> your job is to be an actor. And in this industry, in this country, that means that you should be able to do Shakespeare, you should be able to do musicals, and you should be able to do uh, to do like a straight up play. And just because we tell you don't that you need to be able to do musicals doesn't mean you have to be able to sing, but you should be able to carry a tune or to sell a song. Yeah. And so, like they were, they very much were, were strict on like be able to do all three. Wow, that's cool though. I think that's great. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. you know, sometimes it's there's been a bit of a shift, right? Like I remember shows like Hades Town. I remember when that casting notice came came out, and there are a few musicals like this where they would say no musical theater voices, right? Or no no musicals, and and of course we've got like pop, rock, alternative music, and I think which is great because there are different kinds of voices, and we're not having to fit a certain prototype. And you know, I worked for Disney for two years. I'm not I'm not knocking Disney, but there is a certain sound associated with that, right? And not everybody um, has that naturally. And I think it's important, you know, we can be, as actors, we can be mimics and do that, but then do something else too, to develop your own voice. Yeah, absolutely. The whole uh, no musical theater uh, voices, it, I'm reminded of like the original cast of Rent was hired because they weren't musical theater uh, performers at the time. And then they became... Right, yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, see, so that like, and then they write shows, yeah, and then they write shows. Okay, let's write it like a show. Let's like Idina sings like this, so let's write this and let's do this, and and yeah, exactly, that can happen. And yeah. of course, I remember seeing Neil Patrick Harris do Rent uh, at La Jolla, and he's done a lot of musicals and stuff. So he, he, you know, he was different but wonderful as well. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Sure. Um, one of the things that I know is important to you is the, the, the balance between art and life, because we all have to do, um, we have to, you know, we want to create art, we want to create theater, but we also have lives. Um, I've kind of feel that for some people, although, uh, the pandemic was a terrible experience for a lot of people, the one thing that it did do was sort of force a lot of people to sit back and figure out who they are outside of the industry. Um, and whether or not we can carry that through, because once the treadmill of production starts going, it gets a lot harder to do that. Um, for you, what what is important about the work-life balance there, the art-life balance, and and how do you maintain that? That is a great question, Phil. Um, I mean, uh, I will say that like at the beginning of when COVID first, you know, March 20, whenever it was a couple of years ago, I was tired. I was a bit burnt out. So I was grateful to have time to um, be quiet and to hang out with my family uh, and not not have the decision to make, oh, do I take this job because I'm going away? Like that was freed from me. And I didn't. And my ego wasn't, you know, going, oh, the phone's not ringing because nobody wants like that. No, but the phone was ringing. There were no phones like it was like. So it was a sort of built in. And I really felt like I really needed that rest. And um, I try to do that, like even in before COVID, to give myself time to like take a vacation, um, to rest because I find, and of course you rest and you get creative ideas, lying on a beach or walking in the woods. And it, it all serves, it, it, it is good for your creative spirit, I think, to do it. But the act of taking time off or spending money on a trip or stuff, I always find it like, I always have like cold feet about it and I never regret it. Um, yeah, my family, I mean, I come from a big Greek family and we're all really close. And, um, during COVID, um, we, we spent a lot of time together, which was really nourishing for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I try, like if stuff's going on in my family, if someone in my family is going through a hard time, I will, and I have, um, said no to jobs that take me out of Toronto. Um, I love traveling. I love working across Canada and, 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 and beyond. But, um, yeah, for me, I have felt like there've been times when a family member was sick or, um, that I just, I couldn't in good faith, even, even go to a place like Stratford. It just felt too far. And, and the work we do is so, uh, I find it all encompassing. And so I know that even if I'm two hours away, I'm going to be like absorbed in a world and I'll be absent in a way. Uh, for my family. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I've been doing this now like 30 years, I guess it'd be 30 years in 94. Uh, sorry, in 2024 will be 30 years. Uh, and I remember going to Charlottetown that summer and um, being really like everyone was in good health and stuff, but I was just really afraid of something happening because I felt very far away. Um, and there were no cell phones or I don't think I had, maybe I had a computer, but it wasn't like I wasn't on my laptop. Um, so really felt like I was going off like to, I don't know, like a Siberia, like Hoddle and Fiddler on the Roof. I felt like I was going off to someplace. Um, but I think also the good thing about traveling and doing that early on for me and for us is we also have to live our lives. And so finding a way to, um, and my parents have always been really supportive of me doing, uh, doing this work. So coming away, coming back. 
was that too far? Okay, I can try going further this time. Like a constant, a constant balance. Yeah. You know, you were mentioning about how all-encompassing it can be. And what, what you know, it, it's understandable because every time you join a cast, you form a family, you form a temporary family. And the hours are long and the work is intense. So, of course, it becomes all-encompassing. And so sometimes yeah. it can be hard to remember to call your family, call your partner, call it like this sort of stuff. But it's so important to do both. Totally. Yeah. And I have and I, and I do it. Like, I, I call my folks every day. Like, I, I just have always been like that. I'm the oldest. Um and, you know, part of that, too, like the great thing about the family is, I mean, I was doing a play this fall in Toronto and um, my brother was quite ill at the time. And uh, so that was hard. He was here in Toronto. We were doing the show in Toronto. But of course, one of the blessings, too, is the the, the theater community. My cast was, I think if I was doing a job like, I don't know, working at, um, I was going to say stores, but they're all gone, like Le Chateau. But I don't even know if Le Chateau exists anymore. Um, so let's say I was working at H&M. Like, not to say that the staff wouldn't be great, but um, but I I really felt like that helped, uh, you know, having having that, having a family around a cast. So even though it was challenging and all encompassing, um, I felt like it helped it helped me through that time. So, yeah, yeah. those those families th that are formed are, are pretty strong. And I, you know, they, they don't necessarily they're not just a cast. I remember number of years ago doing a tour on the Fringe Festival and somebody who was from out of the country, they were from Australia, they had to have their appendix out suddenly. And everybody was like, okay, okay, so do we have to take collection after our show? Do we have to do this? Like everybody was ready to like pass the hat specifically for this person um, after their shows to help pay for their hospital bills, which eternally didn't, nobody needed to do. So everybody yeah. was, re was relieved, but it was like, everybody was just so ready to jump in and help. And I think that's one thing that that the community is really good at. Yeah, I agree. So, so much so. And, and, um, and I, I, you know, I say too, like, I feel like I've chosen the profession where my heart leads me. And, and so that like, in a way that's also with my family. So it, it, even though it's, it's so strange cause it's both two different worlds, but also they're very linked. <clears throat> and, um, so that's, yeah, I feel very fortunate to, to be able to do that. Right. One of the things that I love to do on this show is to is to hear about people's um, uh, theater origin stories. Like, why, what brought you to the theater? What was your first experience? And how did you decide this was going to be the thing that you were going to do? Mm. Well, I think um, I, my mom took me to see Annie uh, at the then O'Keefe Center. Um, I remember where our seats were even. I, we were on the aisle about the 11th row um, and she took me and I, uh, yeah, like I fell in love with it. Like I, 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 we got the album and I went home and like started singing it all the time. And my brother would be like, stop singing. Like I would just be shouting like tomorrow and maybe like, because I was like, not only did I love, fall in love with musicals, but I always felt like I was the sort of artist kid in my family. And I was like, maybe I've been adopted and maybe that's why. And like, so it was like a double like whammy of like, I belong, you know, as a street urchin orphan. And I, I still love that score. I have the album. I have both the movie recording and the original cast album. I, I love that album. Um, and so definitely that. So seeing that show just, I don't know, you know, that, that Yip Harburg quote about how a lyric helps you um, 
think, a, a feel a thought. Talks about how like words, right? And like that lyrics, like you feel a, uh, like I, so I think that was just, that synergy was gorgeous to me. And so I fell in love with that and then got, you know, I think Evita was the next cast album I got singing at the top of my lungs, like just in my, I was, I think like 12 or 13 singing Evita. And then, um, so I loved it and I went to an arts high school, um, but I also really liked school. And so I actually thought I would become a lawyer and um, I went to Queens uh, and didn't take drama. And then like within two weeks of being at school, like I was so miserable that I like auditioned for the school play, got to do Wizard of Oz and I kind of didn't look back. And then I guess a year later, like because of my origin story with like a redheaded orphan, I went and uh, crashed the auditions for Anne of Green Gables uh, in Charlottetown, and that was my first job. So, um, yeah, and then it sort of became real. Yeah. Now, you saw Annie. Had you seen Evita, or did you just, like, just discover the soundtrack? I have never seen Evita. Oh, no, that's not true. I, when I was in Italy 25 years ago, I saw a touring production in Florence of Evita in English with Italian actors. But I had never seen it. I just... I would go to the library a lot as a kid and I, I got the, um, and you know, those old albums would have all the lyrics on them, right? Mm -hmm. So I got the original, the first one I, I listened to was the Julie Covington, the um, concept album. And so I just listened to that and I just learned it. I, I just knew, I knew Andrew Lloyd Webber was a composer and <laughs> I just loved it. <laughs> it's funny to me how uh, sometimes those original cast recordings are gateways to the theater. They were my gateway to the theater back in back in uh, 1970. But when I was <laughs> listening to a uh, soundtrack album, my parents had Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, and Godspell. Uh -huh. And those were like, I heard them. And then I started to piece together as a child. Oh, these have stories. This tells us, this is a story. Yeah. These songs lead into them. And yeah. so I became fascinated by that. And that's kind of how I discovered theater was through the sound, the, the cast recordings. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. My parents, we, we what we did have, we had some Beatles albums. Um, I think it was like the 1963 to 1966, like the red, the red ones. And that for me was like, I think pre Annie, the, the gateway, like, because well, I mean, there's such Lennon and McCartney, such good songwriters. Right. And like even songs like Eleanor Rigby and Norwegian Wood as a kid, like they sort of touched something inside of me that I loved Rafi too. I love those albums. But but these lyrics, like there was something about the story and the story songs um, that I that I loved. And I think um, and then ABBA, I remember listening to we had an ABBA album as well. And um, hearing the winner takes it all. I mean, way before Mamma Mia, I found that song had such high drama. Like as a 10 year old, I, I, I was in love. So I think those albums actually sort of set set the stage, if you will, for those other other albums to come in and need to already have my appetite, you know, a little wetted, like for story. Yeah. Storytelling is so powerful and storytelling through song is even more powerful because the music helps tell the stories. So that's right. It's it, it it's a powerful tool for for telling stories. Yeah. Um, so you crashed the auditions for Anne of Green Gables. Um, aside from the book, were you familiar with the musical at that time, or was this like, were, had you heard the soundtrack, the 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 story, or was it completely like you were just like, I know this is a show, I'm going to do it? Kind of, yeah. I did not know the musical. I didn't know anything about the musical. I knew it had been running for a long time, um, but I, I honestly think it was like 
And I think this was like 94 where there was like a bit of a recession, if I'm not mistaken. Like people were having difficulty getting jobs at like TD Bank, I remember. And I um, and yeah, I knew those books so well and I loved those books so well that I, I think it was, um, yeah, I, I, I just thought I know this character. I know this character and I know. So I didn't know the musical at all. And then I remember getting a call back and yeah, having to learn a scene and a song. And I, I never, I had to learn it for the audition. I had no idea. So it was really kind of trippy. Did you, did you know anything about auditioning at the time? Or was it like, were you completely green? Uh, I mean, the only audition, I had a horrific audition the year before, I remember, for Les Mis at the Neptune. And I didn't know that you're supposed to bring your music in a binder. I didn't know. I just brought a Sondheim collection. And like... Oh, gosh. And like she had to hold it open, but it kept falling on the ground. I mean, it was horrible. I felt so bad for that accompanist. And she did say to me very kindly, like, next time, you know, put it in a book. So I did that and, and I was I bombed it. And so um, so it's funny because then when I did the Anne of Green Gables audition that I crashed, funnily enough, I brought a song from um, Avita <laughs> and I brought, um, which is maybe a little inappropriate, but I brought the mistress's song, like another suitcase in another hall. I mean, she's a mistress in Evita, but I was like, she's got a suitcase and she keeps singing, where am I going to? And it's about somebody who keeps hoping against hope. So anyways, my sheet music was in the binder and the wonderful Fen Watkin, who, who was a musical director there for many, many years in Charlottetown, played it beautifully. And uh, and yeah, and I, I did that audition and, and I remember I didn't have an agent at the time and getting a call I think about a month later from the director and he's like, we'd like to offer you Anne. And and I was like happy. And then I hung up because I was like, I don't know if he means the part or the show. Like I, I actually, so I called my mom and my mom's like, well, you have to call him back. <laughs> so I called him back. I was like, do you mean the part? Because like, I, I'm not really a dancer. And he's like, no, no. Yeah. We want you to play Anne and Shirley. <laughs> so. That's a legitimate, that's a legitimate question though. Like, because which is it going to be the so and the character name the same right. thing, right? Well, and it's like, you know, I, I, I teach and I always feel like, oh, back in the day, because, of course, if it was today, like maybe the age, maybe somebody wouldn't call. Maybe I'd get an email and the email would have the offer and it would say the rule. But back in the, you know, just get a phone call. And I think um, to wonderful Jacques LeMay's credit, like Jacques called me, you know, I mean, often they are, the director doesn't call you to offer you the part. But I think he did that. Because he knew I was I was green and um, at I was um, at Queens at the time and one of my dear friends and professors uh, basically served as my agent because I didn't know like somebody's going to pay me to work like we don't need to negotiate <laughs> so it was a, a, definitely like a huge learning experience for me yeah doing that at that point why would you even think that there's a negotiation you get a job and they can tell you what you're what you're being paid right isn't that what you do exactly and like you're flying me there and i get to stay in it like great like get to do what i love doing because i think even though i had um thought about doing it um that was a real like turning point in my life like i i really that sort of and i'll say too like as much as i loved loved being in charlottetown loved playing that part um loved the family of of theater artists funny uh, my birthday was the other day and two of the gentlemen on the crew there who are both one of them's their late 80s and one of them's in their late 70s sent me beautiful cards like we're still dear friends and we became friends 30 years ago right um but uh oh i, I lost my train of thought that's what happened um what's he saying 
Oh, you're talking about uh, about you know the the early days there being in Charlottetown. And- oh yeah, they were just uh, yeah right. That um my um yeah my my teacher at the time had to he he was just basically he served as my agent and negotiated because I just I I didn't even know that you could yeah do do what you love doing get paid for it go away and oh I don't want to say it, because even though I loved being out there I will say it gave me um. I really feel like uh, one of the best things it gave me was that I went back to Queens to do my third year and then my fourth year having worked professionally. And I really felt like then I actually was like, I'm going to do just straight plays this year, straight plays, whatever that means. I'm going to do plays. I'm going to serve because nobody's going to come review me in Kingston, right? Like I'm going to take chances and fail because maybe this, maybe I'll have a career, maybe I won't, but let me enjoy. I really enjoyed the sort of insular nature of being at a training institution, right? And sort of the cushion that that allows you and getting to take classes and, you know, spread myself in other ways. Now you went, you started, you started at, at the university uh, in the law program um, and were very quickly miserable. Did you immediately like switch out of the law program and go into the theater program or did you stick it out for? So I was in English. I was in English. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I, I did switch. I became a drama English major. So I did, yeah. Eventually, I eventually switched. Yeah, right, right. Um, no, speaking of of education, you're also a teacher. Um, how long have you been a teacher for? What do you teach, and and what drew you to teaching? Uh, I guess I've been teaching for about fifteen years now. Yeah. Um, I, when I was at Queens, there were a lot of my classmates who were in the concurrent education program there. So I wasn't in like a fine arts theater program. A lot of the students in my class didn't want to become actors, but wanted to become drama teachers. I love that because I went to a, uh, arts high school and I've never been one for like competition makes me stronger. I'm pretty competitive within myself. Um, mm-hmm. I really loved that my program felt really like laid back in a way. But I never wanted to be a teacher when I was at Queens. Um, and I think part of it was I had some teachers when I was younger who said one or two things that really stuck with me. And I just thought, I don't want to, that responsibility feels too much. I don't want to like mess some kid up. Um, so I stayed away from it. And then um, I guess when I got in my 30s, I, I was taking classes all through my 20s and 30s. If I was away, I would take class. And I just, I love being in class. Um, I still do. I still take class. And um, and I took a class in New York that I really loved. I came back to Toronto and my partner at the time was like, well, why don't you just teach the class that you took in New York? Teach the class you want to take. And it was huge. And so I just started. That's what made me decide to start teaching in a way because I wanted to take a class. And um, I, I I love it. I mean, I've been teaching my own class, which is sort of an acting through song. Um, sort of what we talked about a little earlier, Phil. Um, also, I from those days of, you know, again, you can relate to this. Like back in the day, there was no YouTube to look up songs. You'd go to the Toronto Reference Library, get some albums, sit at a station, go through the books. So I have kind of an encyclopedic knowledge of music theater rap. Um, and uh, so one of the things I do is give people rap um, material. I also love shopping. I'll say like I love clothes shopping and. Like I also at one point wanted to be a personal shopper for someone. I feel like giving people songs is kind of like the personal shopper version of that where, you know, if you watch good make, I think the good makeover shows or the good makeovers are 
you're not changing someone. You're just sort of bringing the things inside of them out and things that make them feel more comfortable in their skin. Um, so finding material and songs and stories uh, for people that make them feel more themselves. And sometimes it means, yeah, you know, let's take it down a semitone. And suddenly somebody opens up or let's let's shift this around. So I've been doing that and I, I teach for an organization in New York City as well, prepping uh, high school kids uh, to audition for college programs um, and and sort of teaching, let it, yeah, into directing. So I love, yeah, I feel like the years of acting, I also feel, you know what, I feel like there's some teachers that I've had that are no longer with us that have really impacted me in a great way. And so I do feel like this sort of lineage of what I can pass down um, to students through people who are no longer here, but I, you know, through my voice, I can share some of their ideas and uh yeah 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 um thinking back to those days of spending lots of time at uh, the metro reference library for example yeah um and just like hours and hours and hours of like looking through plays looking through like songs and trying to find the right song and i think that finding the right song is a particular skill um i notice on like on Reddit and the actors subreddit, a lot of times people are like, I want this role. What's the right song to, to, to sing for that. And, and I'm more of a lurker, but I always want to be like, no, that's the wrong way around it. You need to find the right song for you mm. and not the song to get the role. Cause otherwise you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot. Cause you're not doing what's right for you. What was your song, Phil? What was your song or what is your song? May I, uh... I haven't auditioned for a musical in so long, in so long. Um, I, I, if I ever audition for a musical, it will be, uh, if the world were like the movies from, uh, 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 my favorite year. Ah, that's a great show. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I agree with you. Like, I think I agree with you. And yet I think, you know, sometimes when somebody wants the part and they want a song like that, I think sometimes it's a song that has a similar vocal range maybe, or the quality of the character, like if the character is a villain, they want to maybe pick a song that they get to exercise that within themselves. Um, but I do think you can take a song and um, there's one teacher that I studied with who, who believed you could take one song and depending on the audition, change it. Like change your point of view, change the person you're singing to, change even the, the vocal color of your voice to adapt it to a different circumstance, you know? Hmm. That's really interesting because, you know, obviously, you know, the song is up for an is you're interpreting the song. Right. Um, I think a lot of times uh, uh, some of us get stuck on the way it's sung on the original cast recording. Um, and that's, you need to go past that and beyond that if if you're listening to that. That's right. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, like there's a song, do you know I Remember, the Sondheim song I Remember? No. It's from um, Evening Primrose. Okay. I remember spy. it was blue all the sing. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, that one. And I remember doing a class once where I got everyone in the class to sing that song just so we could I could show that it was a different interpretation even if even if an actor didn't choose any but just to have somebody sing that song because all our memories are different and so we remember different things and the song was eight different interpretations of that song because right. there were eight different actors right. and that song you know it's pretty melancholy but you know if, if but if, if I was to say yeah you know you have to audition that was your song and you had to audition for a character that was a bit of a villain you could tilt that song a little bit 
to, they could be like, I remember this, hmm, mm -hmm. you know, oh, oh, hope they don't find out my master plan. Like there's ways of, that's kind of the creativity, right? It's like, okay, how do I make this fit this thing? And sometimes you can do that. Well, it's also hard to find a song, like a lot of times, you know, listen, I've, I've been on the other side of the table for auditions. And even if it's, if it's not a musical, you hear the same speeches over and over and over. And uh, I'm sure that when musicals are happening, the unfortunate thing is you hear the same song over and over and over. And you, you would want the person who's interpreting the song, not the person who's regurgitating what it was like on the, on the cast recording. And so yeah. your interpretation is super important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, what was, is that where teaching is concerned and directing is concerned? Because they're, they can be close, but different, right? Teaching and directing, because they lead to different things. Um, uh, did teaching lead you to directing or was uh, directing something that sort of came came along really separately? Um, I think, well, teaching led to directing for me. I think um, I, I've directed readings over the years. Uh, and um, sometimes when I would teach, I would think, is this, or is this me wanting to teach or is this me wanting to direct but it's like kind of a safe container right of a class um where there's no audience and then you know i think in a way that's the best part for me about teaching a class is that for the students as well you don't have to worry about an audience and that response right it's a little bit of an incubator playground um well when i got to direct my first sort of professional job a few months ago uh i have to say like it was i mean it, it was uh I thought, why did I wait so long? Like, this feels so right, um, challenging. Um, but in a way, I feel like, uh, and I was nervous because I hadn't done it, but I felt like, wow, like 30 years of acting, that's nothing. Like, it's not nothing. Like, bringing and working with all the directors I've gotten to work with. Um, and, I, you know, I'm an actor who, sure, directors will tell you who work with me. I love asking questions. I ask lots of questions. No stone unturned. You know, I love doing my research. I love doing certain things that sometimes as an actor, I worry if it's like too many questions and too many um, details. But as a director, those qualities, I was like, oh, this is great. Like, I love asking these questions. I love actors asking me questions and the research. I really enjoy doing that part of it. Um, and I've always been, uh, I'm the eldest in my family. I've always been a bit of a connector. I've loved bringing people together. So the great thing when I teach my class, I love getting wonderful accompanists to come in and sort of creating that vibe. And um, as a director, it was great because, you know, I have a set designer and a costume designer and a lighting designer and a, a sound designer and bringing people together um, and being at the helm of that. I really dug. Um, yeah, I, I read a book that were interviews with female directors a few years ago, and it was inspiring to me because um, they talked about how um, that we need new models of directing, that it doesn't have to be like a tyrannical, like I tell you where to go, what to do, that actually, um, that that it can be a collaborative process. Um, and uh, so so that really heartened me in terms of like wanting to enter into an experience and it be a collaboration. I had wonderful actors who who were great collaborators and um, and I also really got loved like going, no, I want this sound cue like, two points louder, this light 10% dimmer, it makes a difference. Like I was, have such great attention to detail and it was okay to do that as a director, you know, which I, I did. I love that sort of, if you will, that control of that. 
and um and learning and and you know i hadn't been in a queue to queue but like knowing that when i saw it my lighting designer jeff was wonderful he's like you'll know when you see it you'll know if it's to this to that and you learn as you go which i think you do as an actor too right yeah absolutely absolutely um you're mentioning about the the the, the process of 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 of, of rehearsal and how it doesn't have to be tyrannical you know i think i think every actor has worked with both they've worked with like a tyrannical person who is essentially like we are going to move you around the stage like this and it's a i've got it written down everything is written down and you're going to move like this and we've have other ones that are like a little bit more free a little bit more collaborative um i often you know i think we all have our favorites and the ones that we've enjoyed more um one of the things that i've been sort of interested in experimenting with in the rehearsal hall is um, trying to figure out, like at the beginning, like what does each person need to succeed? Mm. Um, you know, what does, you know, what what do we need to give you to succeed in this role, or what do you want to get from this production? And if it's just like I just want, I'm just happy to be working. That's fine. But sometimes people want more. Sometimes people need more to succeed in the role. And how can we discuss that and support each person in the room yeah. for getting that? Um, and I think that makes it a little bit more collaborative as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think um, first days are really important. My first day, like I really thought a lot about what, and you know, we didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. Um, and so, and and the piece itself, it was a play called The Other Place, which is a beautiful piece of writing, but a heavy. Um, it, it asks the actors to go to uh, a challenging places. And so I felt like for me, my responsibility was like to foster and facilitate a space where actors felt um, safe to go there and also to keep a sense of play um sort of what we talked about earlier about the balance right of things um it, it always made me feel happy like at lunch when i would hear the actors like laughing their heads off at the the in the green room I was like, right right because just just that that there's a spirit of of that and you can't force that right it's really no. challenging and and everybody is different in every day so being in touch with that um and just trying to uh trying to listen more like i mean i've been talking to you a lot here because it's an interview i guess yeah, it's an interview right you're supposed I'm to talk not. but yeah. but i really i feel like this shift and i, I won't say shift because i still love acting but um feels like a bit of a paradox because as a director on some level you feel like well i have to speak more because i'm directing but i think for me I, it's it's about i get to have to listen more as a director and honing yeah. those skills listening to my actors listening to what even people are not saying but you know feeling people's presence and and and, and also within myself too yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah the that 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 essence of like the actors at lunch they're laughing in the green room and that sort of thing that only how that can only happen when there's trust in the room right that can only happen when somebody isn't playing people against each other when when uh, when everybody is sort of getting along and things are warm um, that's when that that can happen. That's when the family is formed. That's when it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. It's so terrible when you're in the room and wherever it's coming from, some toxicity has come into the room and, and that trust can't be there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'd like to think that. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, I think assembling like an amazing stage management team, like and and this the space you you're in and you know I very like adamant about coffee and treats you know you want people to I mean this goes back to Tim who was my mentor in in university who was my agent when I was playing Anne he would always bring loaves of bread and like pastries and 
like just food to rehearsal. And and I think it's really smart because the on some level, even if the actors don't eat it, they just know that they're being taken care of a little bit. Um, not just as actors, but as like human beings who need to eat food and who sometimes are don't have time to do that. And so just to have that there, um, yeah, I, I think is is really important. Yeah, so important that everybody feels taken care of. And if you can engender that, you've you've created a really great space. Um, now, just as we're sort of drawing to a close, the one thing that I do want to make sure that we talk about um, are games. Because um, I know that that's a big part of uh, that's something that you really love. Um, is it for you? Is it is it all games? Is it every game? Or are there specific games that are like the ones that you really hold on to? Well, so I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, I see your blue and red and white shirt and my Blue Jays. So I'm like, oh, it's the Blue Jays colors. So I'm a huge baseball fan. Um, and I think, so I love the game. I love, I think it's such an elegant game. Such a, I love the pace of it. I, I feel like I learn stuff from the game, but I also feel like a lot of those things can be re, like related to like acting and um, in terms of ensemble and in terms of focus. And yeah, so I love baseball. Um, I watch Jeopardy every night. I love I love a quiz game. Um, I've been going to quiz nights lately with my family. Um, we're also big like Trivial Pursuit people. Um, and uh, I grew up playing cards with my grandparents. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something about like all coming together to do something that's very focused. Um, and laughter. Like I feel like we're also a big euchre family. Like we play euchre so we can like play euchre make jokes like it's 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 yeah we haven't done a lot of the like settlers of Catan like are those like logic games but right games where we can sort of socialize and and I mean I, I'm an actor I talk about my feelings a lot not everyone in my family is is wired that way right yes <laughs> right but but a game I feel like gives you a, like it's almost like a bit of a script it's a bit of a container right where yes you feel safe within that I ask the question you do the answer maybe we'll improv a bit but you know, there's something about that that I feel like very close to my family. I know exactly what you mean about some members of the family not talking. My brother is not a big sharer of feelings. Yeah. And so I will always have to, like, if we get together and he's got stuff going on, he won't talk about it. I sort of have to, like, ease into it. We have to come over. We have to play some video games for about an hour. And then I can sort of, like, ease into the questions. But if it's just, like, jumping in, he won't, he won't go for it. So you yeah. have to, like, I'm not tricking him, but. Yeah. We're lubricating, you That's know? Right. Is he younger yeah. or older than you? He's a year younger than me. Mm, yeah. 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 Um, now, the other board games. So you guys, I mean, sometimes you get into like a family thing, like like Trivial Pursuit. Was Trivial Pursuit something you played like as a as a, as a kid? Yes. I played it from when I was like 12. So it was, so um, my two brothers, one of them a year and a half younger, one of them nine years younger. And so when I was about 12, myself my brother Alec who was 10 and a half and then my mom and my dad would play so it was just us and then as Peter grew up we all played together um as a family and then um a parent split up but like during COVID um my brother Alec his partner Roberta and I would play with my mom every Friday night like we did this for like over a year a year and a half um and yeah, it was it was so great. I mean, some of those questions we we would go to Value Village and pick up like we have nine different trivial pursuits now. Um, some are really hard, but um, but it was great. I mean, so much you know, it, we would play for hours. 
Yeah. You also have to pick up new packs because after a while, you kind of know the answer yeah, to the yeah. questions and it's not really fair anymore. But there's a lot of questions. Like there yeah. are those old ones. In the newer ones, they got a bit cheap and like the decks are like half full. And, right. But the older ones, like they were chock full of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we did this thing or my brother had this thing where because one of the decks, you're right, didn't have a lot of cards, we would use the same card. Like if you rolled again and if you did the same category, then we'd give you a new card. But if not, we would stay on that same card. Right. You wouldn't go through. Yes. No, that's super important. Super important. I always had a problem with Trivia Pursuit um, and just trivia in general. General, You know, as you do, as you in when you're in this industry, you pick up a whole lot of things. You sort of are a sponge. And so I know a lot of things. But if you ask me pointedly to about one of those things, I forget entirely. <laughs> yeah. You know what you do? It's funny. Like I, I, the, the joke in my family, whether I was playing with my brother or my mom, is there would always inevitably be it's either this or this, right? Like like Romania or Ukraine and we'd be like okay we would just roll the dice if it's one to three it's Romania four to six Ukraine and I would say like eight at a time we get it wrong like <laughs> it would be the wrong one but we would just be like say it out loud and, and try to say it and that's why you were your teammate would, would you know right so that's awesome that's awesome well Tracy thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today I really appreciate it looking forward to seeing Ingenue, uh when it opens at the uh, Red Sand Castle uh Thanks so much. It's been great. Thank you, Phil. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Hang out for an hour. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.